I don't know about you, um, but when it comes uh, to the changes in the season, I find that my desires change with each season. Uh, so we have kind of officially entered into the fall season uh, here in central Illinois. But if you remember, there was a time where it was like 95 degrees, 95 degrees. And then like on a Thursday, it was like 45 degrees, right? The minute, uh, the minute it hit 45 degrees, I knew uh, that I needed a pumpkin spice latte just immediately. 95 degrees, gross. Don't want any part of it. 45 degrees, desire changes. I need it. I have to have it. Uh, And also in the fall, I find myself wanting to go for longer uh, walks in the morning, uh, preparing our home and our hearts for Halloween and and that whole thing. Now, in a few months, it's going to be winter or in a few days, if you believe the forecast, but probably in a few months, it'll be winter. And uh, at that time, desire will change again. First, it will be Christmas and the music and the food and the lights. And then I'll start to crave, I don't know about you, fires in the fireplace, snowy days, sledding, uh, peppermint mocha. Uh, You pick up a theme here, right? Uh, Each time there's a season change, Starbucks takes more of my money, basically, is what happens. And then then it will be spring. And again, my desire will change. I'll look forward to being outside again, doing yard work, preparing our garden, pulling out and cleaning up our lawn furniture. And and then it will be summer. And again, a change in desire, a desire for ice cream, swimming, the lake, time with family. At the change of each season comes a change of desire. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans 1. If not, we'll have it on the screen for you. Uh, But we all have desire. This is a series about desire. And we all have desire, and it's important, I think, that we know from the get-go that many of our desires, God gave us desire. God placed desire inside of us. Now, those have to be managed and taken care of and uh, uh, sought after in God's way, and and we certainly want to desire Uh, the things that God wants us to desire. I want to have a desire for the things that God wants me to have, essentially. So we want to make sure we manage desire in that way. But God is the creator of desire. So some of you have a desire to have a good work life, right? To have a good work balance. I believe God has placed that desire inside of you. Um, Some of you have a desire to have a really great family life. I believe God placed that desire inside of you. Uh, Some of you have a desire for time away and and getting away. I believe God placed that desire inside of you. Uh, Some of you have a desire to know God better and worship him more. I believe God has placed that desire inside of you. And listen, desire is easy when it's like that. When I desire something God desires for me, right? When, when um, God, my desire and God's desire match, matches up, that's easy. We don't even need to have a sermon series about that, right? When you desire something God desires for you, go after it. Enjoy it. Make it happen, right? That, that, that wouldn't be a sermon series at all. It's when we desire things that God doesn't desire for us, When we desire something harmful, sinful, or wrong, what do we do? How do we get into that place? There's a story in the Old Testament of 2 Samuel 11. In uh, 2 Samuel 11, where David really is supposed to be off to war, but he's home from war for some reason that we're not told in the text. And he's up up on the roof, and he's kind of looking around uh, the the palace grounds, and he sees a woman on, on her rooftop taking a bath, and immediately his heart fills with desire. And he sends out word. He says, I want to learn who this woman is. And he sends out word about her. And the text says that the the servant came back and says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Here's essentially what was said to David. Dude, she's someone's wife. 
right? And, and she's not just someone's wife. She is the wife of someone who has served you faithfully. Reading between the lines, I think what the servant was saying to David is, manage this desire, right? This is not from God. This is not good. Do not go after this, David. Manage this desire well. But David, he feels entitled, and David feels powerful. And the next words in the text are this, David sent the messengers to go and get her. And he has an affair and she gets pregnant and he ends up killing her husband and David lost a ton. And David ended up living with the consequence of this because he refused to pay attention to and manage his desires. And I think we're living in kind of an interesting time right now because for almost all of human history, uh, for a lot of human history, I should say, there has been an outside force that has shaped our desires, our collective desires as a people. There's been an outside force that has restrained our desires as a people. In some moments of human history, it's been government and they've passed laws and like it's fine to desire, but you can't do this. Otherwise you're going to jail. So at times it's been government, sometimes it's been culture. There's been a collective understanding of it's okay to desire this, it is not okay to desire this, right? So at times it's been culture, at different times in human history, it's actually been God, right? Where it's like God is gonna manage our desire, God is gonna look after our desire, and we are going uh, to, to trust in him with our desires. But we are living in a time in history right now where we are moving away from all of those entities, we are moving away uh, from government uh, being the decider of that. We are moving away from culture being the decider of that. We are moving away from God being the decider of that. And the culture we live in right now has decided the individual will decide what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. We are living in the individual age where what I want and what I desire and what I feel is the most important thing then is the most important thing. And it's so easy to live this way in our culture we are inundated with this day after day after day, and I worry that we are all gonna have a series of moments like David where we end up hurt, not just by our decision, we end up hurt by our desire. We end up hurt by our desire because we decided as an individual we would pursue what we thought would make us happy. And so, listen, some of this is new to our culture, but we are not the first culture that has struggled with desire. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote a, a, writes a group of Christians living in Rome, and he hits on this idea of desire. In the total text we're going to study today, he uses the word desire three times. And he's going to talk about how our desires get askew, and he's actually going to teach us, I think, a powerful principle, a, a powerful lesson about how to fix it. So, he's gonna, so we're, the first part of the sermon is how do we get to a place where we end up desiring something God doesn't desire for us? How do we get there? And then Paul is going to teach us how to fix it. All right. So here's what Romans says. Starts out on a happy note. The first three word, uh, the first four words: the wrath of God. Right. Uh, the, uh, welcome to Northwest. Right. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since that may be known by, uh, about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that uh, were made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts and to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Like I said, over the whole text, we're going to look at some more text in a minute, but over the whole text, this idea of desire is used three times, and primarily it is used in the negative, where it is describing someone who wants something for their life. They desire something for their life that God doesn't desire for them. And it describes this thing inside of all of us, the sin nature that all of us have that is drawn to and tempted by and desires the wrong Thing. And like I said, this is a text about the anatomy, about how our desires get into this uh, position. Because you would think we're all created by God. We're all image bearers of God. You would think that we would all just desire the thing that God desires for us. But somehow we get askew, and this text tells us how. He says the first thing that happened was they stopped glorifying God. That was the first thing. They stopped glorifying God. God stopped being the most important thing, the most important priority, the person they loved the the most. Their desire for him and his will and his ways and his commands began to grow cold, and they settled for a generic and cold knowledge. Now, there is a big difference between having knowledge and being a worshiper. All right, let me explain it to you this way. This is fall, and so we'll talk a little bit of football, all right? If you've been around Northwest uh, for any length of time, you know that my wife and I are Michigan State football fans. And because of that, because you sit here week after week in the fall and hear me talk about this, you might know some things about our team. You might know that their colors are green and white. You might know that their logo is a Spartan head. You might know that the team stadium is in, 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 is in East Lansing, Michigan. You might have some knowledge. Cheryl and I, we have gone beyond knowledge. Right? You might have knowledge. We are little w, little w worshipers. Right? And let me tell you the difference. We cheer for our team weekly. Whether they are good or terrible like they are this year, terrible, we sit and we watch the whole thing. My wife makes sure of it. Right, because I will tell you, there are multiple times throughout the game where I'm like, we, "Can we stop? Can we? Can, no, we watch the whole thing." All right, so so we we cheer our team on weekly. If you've ever come to our house during a game, we don't invite people over to our house to watch games because we don't want you to think so poorly of us. Because it gets loud, it gets raucous. More than once, our children have cried <laughs> over how loud our cheering can be. So we are cheering. We have invested money into this team, in tickets and swag and clothing. We spend time talking about it around the dinner table. We have written about it. I've written articles about it. We've bent a small portion of our income toward this team. So you might have knowledge. I think their logo is a Spartan head. I think maybe green green and white. Yeah, green and white. Steve wears a lot of green and white. It might be that. I don't know. We are different. 
We are little W worshipers of the, and this is what this text is describing. So when it comes to God, let's get away from Michigan State because it depresses me, all right? When it comes to God, you might know some things about God, right? You might be able to say, he created the heavens and the earth. You might, you might know that. You might know that he sent his one and only son to rescue and redeem mankind. You might know that he is in control of the universe. But today, I want you to consider thinking about God more in terms of a relationship and less like a Wikipedia page, All right? So I want you to think about really becoming a worshiper and not just knowing, giving your heart to him, giving your mind to him, giving your worship to him, giving your life to him, to go beyond just knowing him and say, man, with my heart and my mind and my life, I am giving glory and honor to God. I live for him. He's everything. There's a difference between those two things. It's possible to have knowledge and not be a worshiper. And so Paul was talking about at some point they stopped worshiping, they stopped glorifying, and they gave in to just kind of cold knowledge. The next part of the text says they stopped giving thanks to him. Uh, I don't think we talk enough about Thanksgiving. So let me tell you how, how important I think Thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving, I really believe this, Thanksgiving is the kindling and the fuel of desire. So anytime you witness somebody who is in a really happy marriage, And you're like, man, they seem really happy. They love each other. They're committed to each other. I guarantee you, when you start poking around in that marriage a little bit, you are going to find the discipline of thanksgiving, right? The the wife is disciplined in her approach to her husband. She's thankful for him. The husband is disciplined in his uh, thankful attitude toward his wife. Anytime you see a church that is healthy and they are loving each other and serving one another, if you start to dig around in that church a little bit, you are going to find an attitude and discipline of thanksgiving where the people in that church are just so thankful for the people around them. Uh, Anytime you see a healthy friendship full of love and respect for one another, you, you start digging around that friendship, you you are gonna find the discipline of Thanksgiving. And you might notice that I use the word discipline a lot because I think Thanksgiving is a discipline. That you are training your mind and you are training your heart on a daily basis to either focus on Thanksgiving or to focus on the things that frustrate you and the things that bother you and the, the things that breed contempt. It's true in your marriage, it's true in your church, it's true in your relationships, and it's true with God. We want to discipline our hearts and our minds to thanksgiving when it comes to God. To be thankful for the work that he has done. How gracious, kind, and merciful he has been. And Paul is saying about the Christians living in Rome that that at some point they moved away from this. They stopped being thankful to God and maybe they started to be frustrated or angsty about what he was doing. And they stopped giving thanks. And thanksgiving is the kindling of desire. So they stop desiring the things of God. They stop desiring the commands of God because their thanksgiving had waned over time. The next thing it says is their thinking became futile. Their thinking became foolish. Later, the text will say they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And I think when you examine our culture and you dig around a little bit, you will see that this describes our culture, our views of sexuality and life and money and any number of things. I think it describes our culture that our thinking has become foolish. 
as we've moved away from God and we've moved away from his desires and his commands and his ways, our thinking has changed. And so our desires have gone amiss and our thinking has become foolish. And the end result of all of this is that the created thing in Rome, the created thing became more important than the creator. And the desire became for the created thing instead of the desire being for God. That's what happened in Rome. So listen, it's easy for this to happen. Food is a created thing. And it is a thing created by God for us to enjoy. But when our desire for food becomes more important than our desire for God, food gets way out of whack. Right? Sex is a thing that was created by God. But when our desire for sex becomes more important than our desire for God, it becomes a, a, a real negative thing. Family is a thing created by God, a thing that is meant to give us joy. Remember that as we approach the holidays. It is a thing that is intended to give us joy. But when family, desire for family, becomes more important than our desire for God, it becomes a skew and it becomes an issue. So, we have uh, an eight-year-old in our house. Uh, we also have a two-year-old, but she's not here uh, uh, to this point yet, the, the way that Sam is. We have an eight-year-old, and screen time is very, very important to my eight-year-old. Um, we use it to our advantage, right? Uh, that, that it's a very important thing to him. He gets a certain amount per day, but every once in a while, I'll say, hey, listen, if you wanna do this above and beyond thing, I'll let you earn some extra screen time for the day. And so the other day I was uh, wanting some help in the backyard and uh, you know, I said, listen, if you wanna come help me in the backyard, I'll give you, a, it's above and beyond, it's not your normal chore, I'll give you some extra screen time. And he worked diligently. Um, he worked as hard as I've ever seen him. And so I gave him the screen time, but we're in this era of time where um, the screen time, is, it is so valuable to him. And uh, I'm praying it won't be that way forever, praise to God, pray, pray to God, but that it won't be that way forever. But it is a major source of desire for him. And I will tell you, there are two ways with my son, and I think the text teaches this as well, there are two ways that I know that his desire for screen time is getting too strong. All right, two ways, all right? One of them is his emotions will become compromised. His emotions will become compromised. He will become very emotional, and very upset at the end of screen time as though you've just like ruined this really, really important thing. And in a way you have, right? So his emotions will become compromised. His decision-making will become compromised. And so sometimes at the end of screen time, he'll say something like, listen, if you'll, you, if you'll just give me 10 more minutes of screen time, I'll give up my screen time for the rest of the month. It's like, that is a terrible deal for you. I'm not gonna give that deal to you. That, that, that is a terrible deal, but his decision-making gets compromised. And before we tease on Sam too much, what's true of my eight-year-old is true of our culture, and it's true of you, and it's true of me. That when desire gets out of whack, when desire gets compromised, two things almost always happen in your life and mine. One is emotions get compromised, have you ever had an experience with someone where you're like, dude, why are you so angry about this? Uh, wh wh why are you so emotional about this? It probably has to do with desire. And decision-making will get compromised. Those two things almost always happen. This is why you can see a mile away with your friend. 
You can see it coming a mile away. This is terrible for you. This is a bad decision for you. You have got to stop heading in this direction and you can see it clear as day, but they can't see it at all. And as a matter of fact, they just get angry with you and emotional with you. What is happening? Misplaced desire, emotion has become compromised, decision-making has become compromised. And so you can, and this is why when you look back on decisions that you've made, that you regret, you probably had your mom and your dad and your cousin and your uncle going, eh, 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 you are heading the wrong direction. Turn away. This is bad for you. And you're like, you're angry with them and you're emotional toward them and you just keep plowing forward. Why? Misplaced desire in the wrong place. Emotion gets compromised. Decision-making gets Compromise, And so Paul is going to teach us. It's not all hopeless. Paul is going to teach us an important thing on what we do about this. He says uh, in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. All right, we're going to close there. All right, we're now, now it's <laughs> just stop, right? No, uh, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. See, you think when Paul is addressing misplaced desire, he's like, man, your desires, you want something for you that God doesn't want for you and you're emotional about it, and your decision-making is compromised, you would think that Paul's primary message in this moment would be stop. Stop desiring that thing. It's going to hurt you. It's going to devastate you. It's going to lead you uh, down the wrong path. And it's certainly at the beginning of this text, it appears that that is exactly what Paul is teaching. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. It seems like Paul is saying, stop. Just stop, right? That desire you have for the coworker, stop. That desire you have for the thing that's gonna put you more in debt, stop. That desire you have at, at work, stop. You would think that this would be the overwhelming thing that Paul is teaching, but here's what we know about stop. We know that it rarely works. When you think back to your friend's decision we talked about earlier, when you think back to your decision, stop would never ever work. If you just said, hey, listen, I think this relationship's getting out of control. Stop. They'd get all emotional and defensive and plow right forward and, and continue to, to, to follow that desire. Or, man, I don't think you ought to go into any more debt. I think you got enough debt. They get emotional and upset and they, they move forward. Why? Because stop never works. And that's actually not what Paul, not what Paul is teaching either. Um, he introduces us to this idea in verse 13. I call this the law of greater desire. And it's so important that we learn this. Um, in, in verse 13, he says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Stop. But, but rather offer yourselves to God. Paul is teaching us the law of greater desire. That it's not just about saying no to the desire of sin. It is about creating in our heart and our mind a greater desire for God. Right? So it's not just about saying no, stop. It is about saying yes, go. 
And it is about creating in our heart and our mind a desire for God, a desire for his ways, a desire for his truth. So there's this principle in dieting. I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I actually know a lot about dieting, all right? Um, There's this principle in dieting that says, let's say you want to give up chocolate cake. Why would you ever want to do that? But let's say you did, all right? Um, You want to give up chocolate cake. There is a way to do that in which you put signs all around your house, say no to cake, all right? On the mirror, you get up in the morning, you're brushing your teeth, you look up on the mirror, say no to cake. I'm going to say no to cake, right? You go downstairs on your dashboard of your car, say no to cake. I'm saying no to cake, right? And you post this everywhere. There is a principle in dieting that says by doing that, you are actually placing your heart and your mind's attention on cake, so you got signs about cake everywhere, and you're like, I could go for some cake, right? You know, you know, even though it says, say no to cake, that you are keeping cake in front of your heart and in front of your mind all of the time. So dieting would say, instead, focus on something more positive than just say no to cake. Like it, like it would be like a sign, like, you're not going to believe how much better you're going to feel better. You're, you won't believe how much better you'll feel when you lost 20 pounds, Or you won't believe how much more energy you'll have. You won't believe how much more time you'll be able to give to your kids. And it's about creating this desire that trumps cake. I can't hardly even think of anything. But yeah, you, 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 yeah, no, I'm teasing. You get the point though. That it is, yeah, I want to be there for my kids. That trumps cake. I want more energy for my work. That trumps cake. I want to lose some weight so I don't have to buy all new pants. That trumps cake, right? I'm going to go into debt if I keep eating cake right? Because I got to buy all new pants. So it is about creating a bigger and more important motivator than the thing that, that, that is derailing you. And so for years and years, I feel like I've gotten off track a little bit, but just stick with me. All I can think about now is cake, all right? Um, for years, Christianity has taught moralism, And moralism is where you teach people right living. And honestly, most of the time, the moralistic message is say no. Say no to this, say no to that, don't be doing that. Don't, you know, drink, chew, you you know, the whole poem thing. Don't do any of that. And and we teach people to say no. But Paul says, no, no. I mean, teaching people to say no is a good thing. But we need to teach people greater desire. We need to teach people to say yes to Jesus. Yes to his plan. Yes to his righteousness. Yes to his way. Yes to his commands. And we need to create in people a desire for Jesus that trumps cake. A desire for Jesus that trumps workaholism. A desire in people that trumps debt. A desire for Jesus that trumps any desire that seeks to derail our life. And this makes the rest of the passage make a ton of sense. When you understand that Paul is all about not just saying no, but creating greater desire, what Paul says from here makes a lot of sense. He says, so now guard your thinking. Guard your thinking, Paul says, that we understand that in in this culture, it is easy for our thinking to get messed up. It is easy for our thinking to move away from the things of Jesus and his ways and his commands and to begin to think about my desire and what I want and how I want to live. And so Paul teaches, if you want to have a desire for Jesus that trumps all, the first thing you got to do is guard your thinking because it's so easy for your thinking to get messed up. And then he says, also, practice thanksgiving. The, the, pra- practice thanksgiving. This is the time of year where we start to get rants about uh, how Thanksgiving is eclipsed by Christmas. 
and that nobody uh, celebrates Thanksgiving and uh, post Halloween, you'll have music playing and uh, pulling out lights and engaging in Christmas before Thanksgiving even happens. And I would have more of a rant on this, but because of our family schedule, we're planning to have everything decorated by Thanksgiving. So I don't feel like I have the moral ability to rant on it, even though I want to. Um, so, but you're gonna come by my house going, this dude was ranting about Thanksgiving, you know, anyway. So, uh, so I wanna tell you something. If you want Christmas to light up like never before, spend November in Thanksgiving. You wanna make sure your desire for Jesus remains true and remains more important than any other desire that can derail your life. You wanna make sure your desire for Jesus stays the most important thing. Practice Thanksgiving year round. Thanksgiving is the kindling of desire. That's how important it is. So he says, we practice Thanksgiving. We pay attention to our source of wisdom. We live in a culture, as I mentioned earlier, that views itself as the source of wisdom, all right? This is different than almost any other time in human history. Other times there's always been a collective understanding about desire, there just always has been, that the community decides, the government decides, God decides. There's been a collective bargaining about what is appropriate desire and what is not. Our culture is in the middle of, and I'm not meaning to sound like a henny penny at all, our culture is in the process right now of doing away with all of that. And, and our culture is moving toward self being the source of wisdom. And so we regularly have to ask ourselves in this culture, Jesus, I want my desire to be for you. So Jesus, would you show me if I am becoming futile in my thinking, foolish in my thinking in any area of life? Jesus, would you shine a light on that? Am I becoming foolish about my money? Am I becoming foolish about my marriage? Am I becoming foolish about my kids? And God, would you, would you shine a light? I want my desire to be for you. Would you shine a light in any area that I am not walking in wisdom in? Because it is so easy in our culture, I'm just telling you it is, to view ourselves as the source of wisdom. I don't want myself to be the source of any wisdom. I, I want my source of wisdom to be God and, and his righteousness and his goodness. Last thing Paul says, is we walk in grace. I like how Paul says it. We're gonna close with this. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. I've talked to you about this before several times. Would you allow me the grace to talk about it just one more time? And then five more times after that later. Um, some Christians believe, they really believe, that a profound sense of God's grace will result in more sinful desire, right? They really believe that. That if you teach people to, to love and walk in grace, people will give in to their sinful desires at alarming rates. Many, many Christians believe that, and there's only one teensy-beensy little problem with it, and it's called the Apostle Paul. He says, for sin shall no longer be your man. Sin is not going to be your man. You're not gonna be run by sin's desire. Why? Because you are not under the law, but under grace. So Paul really believes if you teach people to love grace, if you teach people to walk in grace, if you teach people to desire grace, that a good, solid, biblical teaching on grace will result in increased desire for righteousness. 
Paul believes this. And the reason for it is very, very simple. I'm gonna prove it to you here in a minute. The reason is simple. Grace changes desire. All right, why don't you remember that line? Grace changes desire. The, the greatest family grace, all right, so I'm talking kind of family right now. The greatest family grace and, and that Cheryl and I have ever received is the blessing of our children. Sam and Lila are the greatest familial graces that we have received. And there is something about having kids. All right, let me illustrate it to you this way. If a stranger entered your home later today, a stranger entered your home and started waking up in the middle of the night, crying, pooping their pants, and trying to bite you, you would call the police, all right? You would do that. If any stranger treated you the way your kids treat you, you would call the police in. You're like, what are you doing? You poop the bed. Well, no, you can't stay here anymore. You're 45, right? You can't stay in our guest room anymore, right? But we, I, I want to be careful how I say that about, I don't know about gladly getting up, but we gladly serve our kids. We change their sheets. I mean, Cheryl and I have been up multiple times in the middle of the night changing sheets, you know, telling our kids it's going to be okay, you know, uh, helping them get through the night. We wouldn't do this for anyone but our kids. Why? Grace changes your desire. And so when you understand grace, when you walk in grace, it changes your desires, just like the grace of children. I believe that, that children are a grace. So just like children change your desire, grace changes your desire. And that illustration about kids, it pales in comparison to what Jesus has done for us. The grace he shows us. When you think about Jesus going to a cross and what he endured to forgive your sin. When you think about how much he loves you how much Jesus must love you to have done what he did. When you think about how he has secured your future in heaven, when you think about how he has given you the Holy Spirit to guide and direct your life, when you walk in this grace, it changes your desire. It should anyway, right? I would say if it hasn't changed your desire, then you still don't quite understand grace. Because grace always changes desire. So when you understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, poured out to you and poured out to me uh, uh, in way after way after way, when you live in that grace, when you walk in that grace, when you celebrate that grace, you better bet it's going to change your desire. You will desire the things of Jesus. It happens supernaturally. You will no longer be a slave to sin. You will be a slave to righteousness. You will desire the things of our Lord Jesus Christ and not, not the things of this culture. It will, and it happens slowly and it happens over time, but it starts with an attitude of thanksgiving that lives in grace. And so I know some of you could probably preach this even better than I am. I have pounded this again and again and again. I do it because I love you and it is this important. Walking in grace does not result in sinfulness. Walking in grace changes your desires. It changes your heart. It changes your mind. It will change everything. And so this is where Paul ends his discussion on desire. Is he says, you want to kind of uh, give up on chocolate cake? And other desires, you want to kind of walk away from the things that are maybe destructing and derailing your life? So yeah, you can try saying no to chocolate cake and pin it up everywhere. 
or you can say no and at the same time create a greater desire that has as its soil where it grows is grace, a desire for Jesus, a desire for his way. And when you have that greater desire in place, those lesser desires over time, not overnight, over time, they begin to fall away. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. May our desire be for him. I I know that there's a lot of us, it might not be, it probably isn't, chocolate cake, the thing that we're struggling with the most. Um, But I bet there's something in every heart and mind in this room. I know there is with me. And our temptation is to just knuckle down and say, say no, say no, say no to that. You can do it, just say no. And while that's okay, today I want us to say, say yes to Jesus, say yes to his grace, say yes to his righteousness. God, create in me a greater desire for you. And the combination of those two things will be a powerful, life-changing thing. We don't want to desire things that you don't want for us. Help us to desire the things that you want for us, Lord. It's so easy to get screwed up and turned around. But we want, we want what you want. Help, us, help it to be so. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now.